If you've got a Bible, I'd love you to open it up to Genesis chapter 1. That's where we're going to be starting this morning. And then we're going to be heading to 1 John. So Genesis chapter 1, I'm going to read from verse 26 to verse 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. All right, if you can flick over almost to the back of your Bible, the book of 1 John. If you hit 2 John, 3 John, Jude or Revelation, you've gone too far, come back. Uh, I'm going to read 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 to 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Uh, I want to give a warning before I start today. Um, There's a good chance I could offend everyone at some point. And so I want to ask for your grace. Uh, It's obviously not my aim to offend everyone this morning. Um, And in particular... I'm going to be looking at our question today from a big picture view. And you may come with particular questions about particular issues and I'm I'm pretty sure I won't answer them directly. And so the beauty of what we're doing this month is that there's a phone number that you can text in. All right, it's up there on the screen. If you have questions that you want to ask, if there are things that I don't answer today, uh, after the talk... We're going to watch a very quick video. We'll have a break. You'll get a chance to fill out these connection cards. And then Deepa's going to come and ask me some questions that come up as we go through. All right, so I want to start by praying. Let's, let's ask God for help. Lord, this morning we come to you asking that you will help us understand what your word does say and doesn't say. We ask that you would challenge us. And help us to line our lives up with what your word says and to see that as good. Lord, we've sung of your love this morning. Love of the Father who gave his son for us. May that humble us and may we be a people who love others as a result. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For many people in our culture, the Christian view of of sexuality is a huge blockage to faith. I think for some people they would say, why should an ancient book uh, 
have authority over me in my life? Who is God to talk about and have authority over my love life? And, and I find that the public discourse on this topic makes it all the more trickier. You've got Israel Folau, who posts things on Instagram and says that the bushfires are the result of Australia's sin. You've got prominent conservatives who wield truth like a hammer. You have Christians who take the Bible and play games with it and offer alternative biblical interpretations that line up in such a way that they become a little more palatable to our secular culture. And so confusion reigns for many, vitriol reigns for many, and many, especially Christians, forget that this issue of human sexuality is a deeply personal and significant issue for many in our culture, and it's marked by significant pain. Today I have a few ambitious aims, and you can hold me to them. We'll see if I get there. Here's what I'm aiming to do today. Right? I want to help us understand our moment and place culturally because we don't live in a vacuum. Our culture speaks loudly on this topic, doesn't it? And I also want to, st- I want to help us understand what the Bible does say and why. Because before I can answer the question of why listen to what God says about sexuality, you have to work out what God says about sexuality. And yet I think for any person wrestling with issues of sexuality, you have to see that what God is offering is actually better for human flourishing than what our culture offers, that the story the Bible tells and draws us into is better than the narrative being told by our world. My hope is to help those exploring faith this morning wrestle with God on this. But also for those of us who are Christians, my hope is to help us think and act in line with Jesus and in line with Scripture, with all of it. And my hope is to offer help and hope to those wrestling with a range of sexual challenges and issues. I I realise I can't do everything. And like I said at the start, we're going big picture today. We're not going down into the specific issues. And so if you have specific questions, please ask uh, with the question and answer. Let's start with our current culture. We live in a highly sexualized culture, don't we? Sex and sexual gratification is so important, according to our culture's narrative, to living a whole and human life. Our stories celebrate it, don't they? TV shows and movies, the climax is not when the couple gets old and deals with issues with their kids or their family. No, no, no. The climax is when they go to bed together. The climax is sexual gratification. It's about consummation, not remaining committed when one's sick or when sex is difficult. Sexual gratification is a great ultimate good for our culture. And we use sex to sell everything, from cars to perfumes to watches to muesli bars, the works. Sex sells. Over the last few decades, we've seen that pornography use has become ubiquitous, especially amongst young people. Two years ago, we had a very large, long debate in our country about same-sex marriage, and now it's legal. The large majority of our culture support that. And whereas 50, 60 years ago, the shame culture of Western countries like Australia shamed people who were homosexual, today we see a bit of both. 
Today, social media is the place of public scorn and shame where people pile on. For many, it's a sign that our culture has gone to the dogs. And for others, it's a sign that our culture has finally arrived. Ironically, our highly sexualized culture Studies show that we in Western countries like Australia and Britain are having less sex than ever. We prize it more highly than ever, but we're doing it less than ever. Now, before we critique, because we need to acknowledge that this sexual revolution of the last 70 or so years has had huge, huge impacts on our culture. Before we critique it, it's worth acknowledging that not all of it's been bad. I say that nervously. See, there is a greater willingness for people to talk about sex. Issues that remained unspoken, marked by fear and shame, and I would argue an unbiblical fear and shame, are now more easily brought into the light. We've seen rightly the exposure of sexual abuse across all areas of our culture and tragically amongst many churches, including Baptist churches. We've seen the courageous pursuit of justice and a concern to protect people from sexual abuse. Perhaps the biggest shift for us Christians to deal with has been that sexual ethics, Christian sexual ethics, used to be viewed as moral and now they're viewed as immoral and dangerous and harmful. And one of the things that makes it even harder is that we as a culture have lost the art of disagreeing agreeably. We disagree with one another and people perceive that as hatred. And so we, and we are guilty of this, those of us who are Christians, many of us have created our own little echo chambers. Social media only makes it worse because Facebook watches everything you like. And it keeps giving you the stuff that you want, so you'll keep using the platform. And so our world, which is so much marked by freedom, we're able to choose our friends and choose where we go and only hear the things that we want to hear. And many in our culture think, if you disagree with me, you must hate me. And sometimes it is true. Sometimes people do hate those they disagree with. Often it's not. Disagreement and love are actually possible. Ask any parent in the room. We disagree with our children all the time, often because we love them. And we use our freedom to avoid people who are different. And if you do that for long enough, eventually what you will start to do is demonise those who are different. You start to imagine people as being significantly different to what they actually are. You imagine them perhaps worse than they are, and we Christians are as guilty of that as anyone. Christians have responded in a myriad of ways. Some, some pine after the good old days, although royal commissions tell us that they weren't that good. Some view people of the LGBT community as our enemy and pile on shame Many of us have taken the moral high ground, hypocritically. We just sung that our only boast is in Jesus Christ. And yet you can't often tell that by the way we speak. We have much to repent of. I've already mentioned institutional abuse. 
There's also been individual cruelty. Christians can speak of people in the LGBT community as less than human. And even if they were our enemy, well, Jesus, doesn't he command us to love them and pray for them? One of the most powerful tools for cultural change is that of story. And I think in our culture, story has played a far bigger role in changing cultural views on sexuality than probably anything else. Think TV shows that have normalised different sexualities, whether it be Will and Grace, Queer Eye for the Straight Guy in the, the 90s more recently, Transparent and other shows like it. And Christians, what we often do is we counter stories with facts. But stories don't capture the heart or imagination. Sorry, facts don't capture the heart or imagination like stories, do they? One book that I've I've read recently is a book called uh, A Better Story by Glyn Harrison. Brilliant book on this topic. He says that we Christians have actually let go of what we have to offer the world. We've given facts and truths, Jesus died for you, but we've not grounded it in the story. We've given facts like God created sex to be enjoyed within marriage between a man and a woman, but we haven't told the story of the Bible, that the ultimate end of the Bible is a wedding between Christ and the church. The Bible offers both facts and stories. And when you pull the facts within the picture of the big story I think many of us have found that it's captured our hearts and made us willing to give up all sorts of things that we otherwise might not have been willing to do. So let's, let's turn to what the Bible says. And we're going to look at parts of the story and hopefully combine what the Bible teaches about sexuality within the framework of the big storyline of the Bible that we are drawn into. So if you've got a Bible, come with me to Genesis chapter 1. God has created everything else but humans in Genesis 1, where we picked up at verse 26. And humans are different to the rest of creation. Have a look with me. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God... He created them, male and female, he created them. This is foundational to the story of the Bible. You and I and every other human on the planet are made in God's image. It's not so much that God has two ears, two eyes, a nose, hands, feet. It's it's not so much like that. But we are made to image him, to represent him to the rest of creation. And within these verses is the picture of rule, that we're to rule over creation like God calls us to do, to do it in his stead like a vice regent, like an ambassador. And he creates mankind, male and female, and if you look at verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So God blesses them. And tells them to be fruitful and multiply. Here's the implication from Genesis 1. I mean, how are they going to multiply? He made them sexual beings. God, from page 1 of the Bible, we need to be very clear on this. He created sex. And it's good. Christians sometimes forget this. 
It's important to also note that this idea of the image of God is meant to be the primary identity marker for us as humans from page one of the Bible. What are we? Well, we're humans. How are we different from the rest of creation? What marks us out is that we are made in his image. This is the foundation of value, the value and dignity of all human beings, regardless of gender or age or race or class or sexuality. All of us bear the image of God. Now, if you flip over in your Bible to page 2, to Genesis chapter 2, we have another picture of creation, a complementary picture of creation with a different focus. God creates the man, says it's not good that the man is alone. He creates the animals. And Adam says, I don't want to marry one of them. And God creates a woman. Now, he's not saying that everyone should marry. He says it's not good that the man be alone and that he needs another human. Human flourishing needs more than one human. But it's here in chapter 2 that the Christian understanding of marriage finds its foundation. Have a look with me from verse 23. So God has made this woman from the man. And then in verse 23, the man sings a song. Understandable. It's the first woman he's ever seen. He's obviously excited. He says, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And here are the, probably the two most key verses. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So from these verses, Christians for the last 2,000 years and before that the Jewish people have argued that marriage is a lifelong covenant, the most serious of agreements between a man and a woman for life and that that is the place for sexual intimacy. And this picture of oneness, one fleshness, this picture of intimacy is not simply physical but also emotional and spiritual. They're naked without shame. And the idea is really simple. According to God, he says to humans, don't be physically naked with someone unless you're willing to be emotionally and spiritually naked with someone. That's where you'll find true intimacy. Otherwise, we miss out on the fullness of the deepest intimate relationship that God has created between us humans. And so from here, this becomes the boundary lines in the Bible for sex for God's good gift of sex, a man and a woman in marriage. And the Bible consistently calls all sex outside of this sin. Uh, I understand for many in our culture, maybe for you in the room right now, uh, that's really offensive and very difficult. Many think it's oppressive. For Christians, as we read the whole storyline of the Bible, We see it as beautiful because of what it points to. Now, we'll come back to that in a moment. This is only the start, Genesis 1 and 2. In Genesis 3, the great lie enters where Satan tells the woman, you can be like God if you rebel against him. They rebel against God. They try and take his throne and sin and brokenness enter the world. And interestingly with it, shame. It says at the end of chapter 2 that the man and the woman were naked and without shame. And when they rebel against God, the first thing they realise is that they are naked and they try and cover their shame. 
And if it weren't so tragic, the picture of two people trying to put fig leaves over their genitals to cover themselves up, if it weren't so tragic, it'd be kind of funny. But we're meant to see that the attempt to cover their shame is pathetic. Their relationship with God is broken. Their relationship with each other is broken. And this strange story, it explains the human condition profoundly. It says all of us are sinners, that all of us carry guilt and shame, that all of us try and cover it up with all sorts of means that never really work. Some hide and some joke and some drink. We all do it in different ways, our own little fig leaves. All of us are marked by brokenness, and that brokenness extends to human sexuality. It actually extends everywhere. In Genesis, there is so much sexual brokenness and sin. You get a bloke named Lamech bragging about the two guys he killed to his two wives, so you have polygamy enter in, and that always goes bad. You've got concubines and prostitution. You've got attempted rape and actual rape and incest. There's a whole lot of sexual sin throughout Genesis. So it's here that we need to pause for a moment. See, the Bible's claim is that all of us are sinners, that we're all broken, and that that sin and brokenness goes deep into all of us, including our sexuality. All of us are broken sexually, regardless of your sexual orientation. All of us, I would imagine, in one way or another, have sinned sexually. Now you might say, well, I've never committed adultery, and I've only ever slept with my husband or wife. Well, Jesus takes this Old Testament sexual ethic and in Matthew 5, he says, if a person looks at another with a hint of lust in their heart, then they are guilty of committing adultery. Jesus intensifies what the Old Testament says, which means, and this is often ignored by heterosexual Christians, that heterosexual people are not inherently holier or less broken than homosexual or bisexual, any other sexuality. Now, as you track God's design for sex through the Bible, through this covenant of marriage in Genesis 2, all the way to its end in the book of Revelation, it becomes a picture of God's relationship with his people. In Ezekiel 16, God talks about Israel as a messed up, filthy, homeless girl who he loves and raises cares for, and marries. In the New Testament, the Bible takes marriage and applies it to Christ's relationship to the church. In Ephesians 5, after Paul gives instructions to the church on marriage, he says that this this marriage thing is a profound mystery and it's pointing us to Christ and the church, where Christ is the groom and we, sorry, we together are the bride. And so here's, here's what that means, because that's tricky, right? There's some weirdness in there. Here's what this means. God created sex and marriage to give us a shadow of his love and desire for us. This idea that God married Israel, it seems weird to talk about marriage and sex in a relationship between God and us. This love that God has for us is not sexual, But sexual love in its most passionate form 
between a man and a woman covenanted together in marriage is a shadow of God's passionate love for us as his people. It's not a sexual love, but it's a deep passionate love, a desiring of us to be in relationship with him. And the faithfulness of a covenant between a man and a woman in marriage displays his faithfulness, a love that is totally committed. And the fruitfulness that ordinarily occurs between a man and a woman in marriage shows something of God's fruitfulness, that his love brings new life. The thing is, our world says sex is the great love act. The Bible says something different. It says the cross is the great love act. Flick over with me to to 1 John chapter 4. In 1 John 4, John tells this, this church, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. He's the origin and the definition of love. He displays it and demonstrates his love. It tells us, in this the love of God was made known among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. So God's love is other-centered and giving. In this is love, not that we loved God. Love is not, God's love for us isn't predicated on you and I being really good. He never looks at us and goes, oh wow, you are so amazing, I need to love you. God's love is that despite our mess and our sin and our brokenness, he is so amazing that he still loves us. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be, my Bible says propitiation, yours might say atoning sacrifice. Propitiation is an Old Testament, old school world that means a sacrifice that turns aside anger and wrath. That Christ would become the sacrifice for our sins. The love of God is not seen in a sexual act, but a sacrificial act of death, where the groom dies for the bride, where the groom lays his life down for his lost lover. Jesus becomes sin for the sinner. He becomes broken for the enemy. The Son of God becomes the enemy of God so that the enemies of God can become sons and daughters of God. You might say, well, everyone can love like that sacrificially. And you might say people of different sexualities, they love like that. They love sacrificially. I'd say that's true. The challenge for us as Christians Is God's love seen in those places? In some ways, yes. But God's love doesn't trump his commands because his commands are loving. 1 Corinthians 13, that that famous love is patient, love is kind. We've heard it at so many weddings. It says that love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. And so for any Christian... Why would we make any sacrifice to follow Christ? It's because he sacrificed everything for us. Whether it be the career or the money or even sexual gratification. For many people who are same-sex attracted, Christ's sacrifice for them, Christ's love for them is the call in their lives to lay down everything, just as it is for every heterosexual person. (laughs) 
to lay down everything and follow him. One of the great challenges for for people in the LGBT community or for those who struggle with same-sex attraction, when they taste the love of Jesus, the, the challenge is one of identity. See, for many in that community, identity and sexuality are are knitted together. Sexuality becomes the primary way that many people view themselves. And that makes sense, right? Because if you hid part of yourself for so long and finally found liberation and exhilaration and sexual gratification in that community and you've come out from possible fear and rejection, it makes sense that that would be so ingrained to who you are. But Jesus says to people of all sexualities, you're so much more than that. You're more than your sexuality. You're made in the image of God. You have an inherent value and worth. You're loved by God so much that he gave his son for you, the most valuable infinitely valuable being in the universe, given for you. And for the Christian, for all of us, our primary identity is that we are a child of God. Now, some make the mistake of tying their identity too closely to sexuality. But isn't it also true that many of us who are heterosexual in this room quite easily tie our our identity to other things that aren't Christ? Our career, our money, our looks, our hobbies, our homes, our things. We all do it. But for the Christian, the primary identity is I'm a child of God and there there is found deep, real, abiding, soul-satisfying love. Real love, we're fully known, what's and all, we're fully loved. We don't have to cover our shame with our little fig leaves anymore. We don't have to cover our shame by being better in other areas of our life. Jesus covers all our shame, all our sin, all our our guilt in full. The question we pose today, why listen to God about sexuality? Who is he to tell us who and how to love? I think in short, the answer of the Bible is that he's our loving creator, that he made us. And if he's God, he must be able to disagree with all of us where our lives don't line up with his will. His lordship and rule must shape us. And why listen to him about love? Because he is love. He's the author and origin of love. He loves us more than we know. And so his commands on sex, although for many are difficult, are for our good, for our joy, for human flourishing. Before we finish and move on to some questions, I guess I want to, I want to share a few words for, for those who are here, and I recognise that there could be a wide array of people here this morning. Um, first, for those who are wrestling, for those of us embracing or struggling with same-sex attraction. I I just want to say straight up, I realise that the teaching of the Bible, that sex between a man and a woman, for a person struggling with same-sex attraction is really, really difficult because the longing of a human heart to be known and held in the most intimate of relationship is a real human one. 
And those of us who say it's no big deal don't know what we're talking about. It can feel like Jesus is a threat to joy and intimacy. And what I want to encourage you to see is that knowing Jesus is better than sex. Ask some people in the room who have kids if it is. See, the goal of the Christian life is not heterosexuality. If you didn't know, it's Christ-likeness. That's the goal for all of us. And for those of you struggling with same-sex attraction, the, the idea of a heterosexual marriage you think is something that will never happen to you, what I want to encourage you is that in the family of God there can be deep abiding friendship, love and intimacy in friendship, families that welcome others in. And beware the lie that to be fully human and satisfied you need sex. Our Lord never had it. And beware the revisionists who seek to make same-sex sex and relationships as compatible with following Jesus. If you want to ask questions about that later, please do. The Bible's clear and consistent in its affirmation of sex being between a man and a woman in marriage. I just want to encourage you that Jesus loves you, that he'll be patient with you. Keep asking questions and find satisfaction in him. It's not just the challenge for those who experience same-sex attraction. It's actually the challenge for all of us. And I think we as Christians need to hear God's word on this. I think we need to repent of our bigotry. We need to apologise to those we've sinned against. See, God doesn't just hold us to be those who bear the truth. He calls us to hold truth and compassion together. To hold to his word, to his convictions, that his word is actually good for us, good for the world, good for human flourishing. And at the same time, be understanding and gracious toward those who disagree. To be gracious that it's hard. To show patience towards those who are struggling. See, the truth is none of us have arrived, have we? None of us have arrived at perfect Christ-likeness. None of us have reached the top of Holiness Mountain where we can stand proud and just survey everyone else underneath us. None of us are there yet. Many of us, maybe even most of us, have struggled with sexual sin to varying degrees of victory. And the truth is that Christ is not done with any of us. He who is without sin, throw the first stone. See, if our church is to be a safe place for those struggling with same-sex attraction or for those who are looking for fulfilment in Christ, even whilst in a relationship that God says isn't holy, we, those of us especially who are married in heterosexual relationships, we must take Christ-likeness really seriously. We must repent of our greed and our pride or our selfishness. We must see those things as sin. You see, Christ is calling all of us to take up our cross and follow him. And by doing that, it makes the call on a person who's same-sex attracted and called by Christ to not pursue those sexual desires as plausible. Because if it looks like none of us heterosexual people are struggling with sin and this is the cross that others have to bear, it doesn't doesn't seem plausible that Christ is worth it. But if all of us are struggling with sin that we all have in various different areas of our life, 
then suddenly following Jesus for those in the LGBT community looks plausible. And so it means that we need to be more honest about our struggles with sin, don't we? How could we expect one of our brothers or sisters sitting here this morning to confess that they struggle with same-sex attraction if we're not willing to confess our struggles with anger or with greed or materialism? Our church has to be a place where confession becomes safe, where shame gets covered by Christ's love and acceptance, where all of us acknowledge that we've all tried to cover our shame and that Christ is the only thing and the only one that can. You know, the Apostle Paul, in three different places in the New Testament, he writes that homosexual sex is outside of God's design. In 1 Timothy, after he says that, a few verses later, he describes himself as the worst of sinners. Do you see that? He holds, he holds to the truth of God's word, but he doesn't stand high and mighty. And he wrote a good part of the Bible. And at the same time, he looks at his own life and he says, I'm the worst of sinners and I need Christ's blood to cover all of my mess. There's no moral high ground for Paul. So there's none for us. My hope is that we would be a people who hold to biblical truth and convictions so strongly, all of them, that as we would hold to what the Bible says about marriage and about the place of sex within marriage, at the same time, we would do it with the grace and compassion of our Lord Jesus, who touched lepers, who forgave the adulterous, sinful woman in the midst of the Pharisees, who loved people for a long time at great cost to himself because they mattered. My hope is that our church would be a place that welcomes all and points all to Christ and to that great final marriage of Christ and the church.